Welcome to the new HR Futures podcast, brought to you by Expedite HR and Circle. I'm Kevin Green, the host for today's podcast, and with me today is Simon Linares, who is the HR Director at Direct Line. Welcome, Simon. Hi, Kevin. Um, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the job you're doing now? And I know that you're potentially stepping away from that, but just tell us, because I know you've been there six years, so what's your current role? So I'm the uh, Group HR Director for Direct Line. Um, a bit about Direct Line that people might not realise. Uh, it's about 11,000 people across the UK. Uh, we have a range of brands. People will know Direct Line, obviously. Might not know that Churchill, Churchill the dog, is yeah, one yeah. of our brands. Um, we also have quite a big commercial insurance business with brands such as NIG. And we also have Green Flag, um, oh, the rescue yeah. business, which is okay. the third biggest rescue business in the UK. Um, the other thing that people won't realise is we have a um, probably the biggest network of accident repair centres in the UK. So the people at Direct Line range from actuaries and underwriters to frontline customer service people to mechanics and engineers that fix your car after it's been in an accident. Okay. So tell us a little bit about your job, what you do there, what you're focused on. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess two ways of answering that. One is I'm a member of the Exco, and as a member of the executive committee, fundamentally we're all there to ensure that the business is successful for all of our stakeholders. So whether that's the right shareholder return for our investors, whether that's the right service for our customers and the right brands for our customers, um, or, and all of that is dependent on having the right people in the business as well. So the specific HR piece is to work out what what it takes to, do, to support the business strategy by having people with the right capabilities wanting to join us, wanting to stay, and wanting to perform. Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you right back to the beginning of your career. Which was, because again, you know, having looked at your CV, you started off as a salesperson, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us a bit about your journey. How did you get into HR? So clearly started off in a field sales role, mm-hmm. and then sort of got promoted some learning and development in a couple of different organisations. I, I suppose I'm interested, was it a conscious decision to move into HR and become an HR practitioner and professional? Um Yes and no. It was a conscious decision to go and do something different and, and, and a conscious decision around what I wanted to do. I'm not sure I necessarily knew that meant I'd end up doing it in HR. So you're right. I started, well, I mean, I had a, a few years in, in banking at very junior level and then I moved into yeah. sales and sales and marketing and went up the normal sales route uh, as an area manager and a regional manager. Uh, and I was driving home one day. I was based in an office in Chatham and I was driving home one day and I suddenly realized that what I really enjoyed was watching my direct reports grow and get promoted. And that okay. was really what I loved. And so that was the trigger for getting into training and development as a career. And sales training and development was the only thing I was qualified to go and do. So I went and did that. I'm not sure I knew then that that meant uh, I'd end up in HR. But what I what I've quickly found out was if you want to do more and more in that arena, you need to move out of sales and then gradually move into HR. And that's how I ended up in management development and started my HR career. So, so, so... Where was that? Where was that transition point? Was that when you were sort of a um, black horse, so financial services? Because then you went into Diageo, and that was more of a traditional set of HR roles, wasn't it? Yeah, so that drive home was when I was at Black Horse. Right, okay. Um, And while I was at Black Horse, I started doing more and more sales training, as well as my sales job. the, The career change happened... In Diageo, before it was called Diageo, it was that long ago, it was a company called United Distillers that was part oh, of the Guinness yeah, part yeah, of yeah, what yeah. became Diageo. Um, and they need, there was an advert and they needed someone to be a European sales training manager. 
And so I had the sales and the sales training experience and I had Spanish because of my family heritage. Okay. And that's how I ended up in sales training. But that was still in sales development. Yeah. It was only after that that somebody within what then became Diageo offered me a role in management development. And that's really where I started broadening out and becoming more of an HR person. I mean, just in terms of HR careers, <coughs> do you think it's, as it stood you in good stead to having some time doing an operational role or a sales role, do you think that's a good thing to have on your CV? Does it give you credibility? Does it get you to think about things from a different perspective? Um, I don't know if it's a good thing on your CV. Um, it depends what you're trying to do next, I suppose. I think it's a good thing if you want to be a senior business person to have worked as broadly as possible. Yeah. And whether that's to be a senior HR person or a senior finance person or a senior director of risk, the more parts of the organization you've been in, yeah. the more credible you'll be, yeah. the more you'll understand the business and probably the more confident you'll be. So as what well. was when you were in Diageo and someone you were having a conversations about, you know, doing the management development role and then possibly taking on <coughs> HR director roles, what was your impression of HR at that time? Um, I was pretty junior. I'm not sure I had that much of an impression of HR. Okay. Um, it, other than it, it's, it was over there. It wasn't over here. It yeah, was yeah. very much over there in the business rather than in what I thought was the heart of the business. Yeah. Um, and, and to be honest, I was very lucky. I think Diageo was very forward thinking when I was trying to make that move because mo- yeah, many yeah. organizations would not have taken the risk then yeah of taking someone with no HR experience and bringing them into an HR management role. Okay. Um, I think it's more common now because people realise that cross-functional experience yeah, is valuable. Yeah, and we're looking for talent, aren't we, in our function yeah. more than ever before. So, so tell us about that transition. How easy was it from you know learning and development, management development, into your first generalist <coughs> HR leader role? Because that's quite a step, that's still quite a step change, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's a huge step change, uh, looking back. Um, it wasn't easy. Uh, I think at the time I was gloriously oblivious to the fact that it wasn't easy. I think the hardest thing, um, two things happened. One is somebody was brave enough to give me that first management development job. Yeah. And I was lucky that somebody was prepared to sponsor me and, yeah, and, yeah. and encourage a, a manager. To but they saw the something in you, clearly, yeah. for them. It was yeah. Like, yeah. But they had lots of HR people they could have given that to yeah, yeah, who yeah. had more relevant experience. Um, the other thing was... Um, one of the senior HR people, uh, a second role in, um, was wise enough to listen to me tell them everything I wanted to do and then give me exactly the opposite of it and ignore everything I'd said. And I can remember afterwards asking them why they'd done it because it's fair to say it wasn't the day I was happiest in the office. Uh, and, the, and the answer I got has, has sort of stuck with me ever since, which is, I, was, I basically said I wanted to stay as close to the front end of the business as possible because that's what I knew and where I could add value and where I'm comfortable. And they moved me into manufacturing and supply, which wasn't at all what I wanted to do. Um, and the answer I got was, until you've done this job, you'll always think of yourself as the sales guy in HR, mm. not the HR guy who's got sales experience. Um, and it was about being able to change that mindset and yeah, yeah. and be able to be part of the HR function, but bringing something extra okay. rather than rather than focusing on the deficit of not having yeah, yeah. done the early years. And then your progression in terms of looking at your CV is quite rapid through Diageo, a range of different roles, more you know more countries, bigger responsibilities. Uh, is that the sort of was that the glory part of your career when you look back? Was that the bit when 
you know, you're sucking it all up, you're making a difference, and they keep giving you the next opportunity? Um, I, I, there's, if you look at a lot of CVs in Diageo, there was so much, it was such an exciting time with so much change happening. Um, and Diageo were brilliant at moving people around mm. internationally, cross functionally. So my CV probably doesn't look that different to a lot of CVs at Diageo in terms okay. of getting moved around, being given new experience and stretch. Um, it probably was. It didn't feel that way when you permanently feel out of your depth because you were always learning new things. You were always doing things you've never done before. So you, it was it was a big stretch, but it was fantastic. And it was without doubt what shaped how yeah. I approach my job. You know. So then, so then the next step in your career was outside of fast-moving consumer goods or, or the drinks industry and, and into Telefonica. Mm. So how did that come about? Was, was you looking for a change? Was you looking for a bigger group HR role? Or? Um, no, not at all. Not at all. I was, um, I was finally in the job at Diageo that for many years I'd always said I wanted to do, which was yeah. HRD for the Africa region. Um, and why did you want Africa? It's just so different. Yeah. Um, culturally different. It was a different business model because it's predominantly a beers, beer okay. business rather than... A, I mean, it has spirits, yeah. but most of the world, Diageo is spirits first. Yeah. In Africa, it was beer first. It had a completely integrated business model, so it manufactured and distributed and marketed. Nice. Um, and the, the fact that it was still a developing continent meant if you do the right things, you can really, really make a difference oh, to people's lives. Fast, yeah. um, and there were a lot of social agendas that Diageo could work on there where... Yeah. Um, so I can still remember that the average Diageo employee personally maintained 17 members of his family or her family because of the extended family yeah, yeah, and the yeah, yeah. tribe system and everything else. So getting things right made a huge difference. Getting things wrong made a huge difference. So it always okay. appealed. So it definitely wasn't a time when I was looking for something else. But mm. um, the Group O2 job came up. And at the time, O2 was in five countries. It was 35,000 people. Mm. It was a big subsidiary of Telefonica, but an independent subsidiary. And it was the chance to really own the agenda. Yeah. Um, and the fact that my family's Spanish meant I could work with Telefonica really closely in a way that maybe others might find harder. But then come back and really build something around what was an incredible time for O2. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. It was, it was the, and it still is in my, in my I, still, I still am a customer of O2. Um, it was the most exciting and innovative telecommunications company in the UK um, so it was just too good an opportunity mm. to miss and what were the big things you did there because that was your first group role wasn't it really in terms yeah. of you know yeah I mean we the, the business strategy was changing there was a uh, Matthew had just taken over recently as the CEO of the group having led the UK before that so he was leading a change through from a leadership point yeah. of view um, by being part of Telefonica it had the ability to start thinking long term in a way that when it was a small yeah, company yeah. in the UK yeah, and yeah. didn't know what its future was going to be, it couldn't. So a lot of the business strategy was around bringing together the best of all the different parts of O2 and making sure we really maximise them. And then the, the market was really changing. It was the time when the iPhone was coming in. Yeah, 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 it yeah, was yeah. the time when the mobile phone stopped being a brick and started being a, a portable computer. computer. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was it was about being able to think about what do you need for the business to be able to respond to the way the customer is changing. And then you did sort of a digital role at Telefonica before then doing ITV and then mm. moving on quite quickly to mm. to uh, direct line. So tell us a bit about that part of your career. 
Um, so Matthew was asked by Telefonica to set up what was called Telefonica Digital, which was basically every digital business they owned around the world that wasn't a telco. Um, and so it was really setting that up yeah, as a yeah, yeah. portfolio of really interesting startups and mid-sized companies. And it was everything from e-health to internet TV and everything in between. Um, and he asked me to go with him and move within the group to do that, which I was really happy to do. Um, and that was a complete opposite of O2. It was very much about how do you work with each company as an individual yeah, yeah, company? Yeah. How do you really start understanding what digital natives want from an employer? How do you start attracting people that traditionally would yeah. never come to a big sort of yeah. telecommunications company, engineering company? Um, so that was a completely different challenge. I was able to take some of the people from O2 with me. Cool. Um, and we built that up and set it up. So what do you want to say about the ITV experience? Because that was only six months and then you sort of landed at direct line. So was that one of those things that you reflect on and go, well, that was, I don't know, it, did it just not work or was it? Yeah, so part of, the, part of the agreement with Matthew when I took the digital job with him was that I wanted to take some time off and have a year oh, off at the end nice. of it. So I was with him for a couple of years. We agreed what, what needed to be done before somebody else could take it over and, uh, and I took a year off. And at the end of the year off, I went, I had two, more than one job offer. I'm sure. Um, and I think it's about knowing your sector and which sectors you're really going to be able to add value to, which cultures you really fit with, yeah. and whether the agendas are the right agendas for you. And it wasn't a match, so it was time to move on. And fortunately, you know, Direct Line was there. So I took a bit more time out after ATV and then went to Direct Line and been there for the last six years. Cool. And again, you know, uh, so there's most probably a better reflection about the ITV stuff and whatever, but the, uh, the the direct line job was the sort of one where you've made a huge mark. You know, every time I look at the list of top HR directors, you're always close to the top of the list and stuff. And I think people recognise you've made a huge difference there. So tell us a bit about what you've been doing at direct line. Um, yeah, and I think you learn from you learn from all your previous experiences you know whether they're the ones you look back on and go I wish I could do it again or whether they're the ones you look back on and you go actually I should have done things differently you learn from them and I yeah. think all of that combined is what's helped me I mean I was direct line was just um it's a it was a fantastic company anyway yeah um it was at a really interesting point in its evolution because it had been just recently IPO'd because it used to be a yeah, subsidiary yeah, yeah. of RBS and it was yeah, spun right. out. Yeah. So it, in some ways, there were some parallels with O2 where it was working out who it wanted to be now that yeah. it was a grown-up big company in its own right. Um, we had a great CEO in Exco who, gave, who really got it and gave you a lot of permission to challenge things. Um, and I, I inherited probably you know the strongest team I've ever inherited in any role I've yeah, ever been yeah, in. The team were fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And so we built a, we built a people strategy based on what the business was trying to achieve, and then just executed and executed and executed. And as a team, yeah, everything we've done is the result of that, really. Okay, so let's sort of just look back at your career and do a bit of reflection. So things you're proudest of, the things where you can go, look, I've I've taken something. We had an idea, we executed it, we deployed it, and it made the impact. You know, where you've you've done something that's made an impact on organisational performance? Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say what are you proudest of because... You're proud of lots of things, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. proud of lots and lots of things, but actually 
Um, very few of them are a specific thing. They're the combination of things over time that really makes the difference. Um, I'm really, I can't pick one. I'll, I'll give you two or three different things I'm proud of for different reasons. Um, I'm really proud of the team at Direct Line. Um, we, we, we went through a process when I joined of really quite fundamentally changing what we thought HR was going to do, how it was going to add value, um, what its relationship was going to be with the business. Mm. Uh, and they really stepped up and into that. Um, and, and not only did it, but embraced it. And did you inherit most of that team, or is it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Most of the team. Nice. I mean, it's five years now, so a few people have chosen yeah. to go on to bigger and better things. But um, I think in the first two years, I think we only had one change in the team. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was actually someone who got a great HRD job of their own right. Yeah. So good, which was great. Otherwise, I wish she was still with us. Yeah. Um, so really proud of that team, and and I suppose because I'm moving on soon, that's kind of yeah, particularly front of mind. Um, I'm really proud of you. You look back at people and you see people who've flown and progressed, um, and you go, "Well, if I had a little bit of a hand in that, or yeah. if I helped a bit, or if some advice I gave them made a bit of a difference, that's something to be proud of." Um, if I was talking about specifics, I think the whole journey at Direct Line, you know, from we'd been through some really tough cost cutting and some shock waves as part of yeah. being IPO'd. Uh, through to being one of the top three employers in the UK in terms of best companies to work yeah, for. Yeah. Um, that That's something I feel very proud of. I think you know it's hard to pick one thing that did yeah. it. It's a combination yeah. of a lot of things, but that's really something to be proud of because it's over five years and it's built on itself over time and everyone in the team's had a contribution to that, a yeah. big contribution. Uh, th- why, why decide to call it a day and do something else? Um, so my life purpose is that everyone has the choices that allow them to live their life to the fullest. Mm. Uh, and kind of, unfortunately, that includes me. Um, I love learning. Uh, I think there are two reasons. Why, why change and why now? Um, why change? I love to learn. Um, I love going into things where I don't know the answer. So the, I, I'm also very clear that, you know, in, normally in the first five years, you get the best value out of me in the job. And after that, I'm probably not the person that you yeah. need. So um, I want to go and do some different things. I want to, you know, I'm learning to be a non-exec. I've got my first appointment at that. I'm learning to mentor people who don't work in the same company as me. And I'm really enjoying the challenge of having to reinvent and relearn myself sure. there. It's the right time. It's five years for me. We've got a great new CEO. We've been through the, the natural evolution you go through as a yeah. result of that. And the strategy is being built, and you're kind of in for the next five years, or you, or now's really when you should be moving on. And we found a fantastic successor, and she's going to take the job on to the next level. So it's it's the right time. I can feel good moving out, but also excited about learning something new. Okay, and we'll, we'll perhaps we'll end on that. We'll come back to that towards the end in terms of you know what next for you and stuff. Um, tell me about you know things that, that perhaps haven't gone so well. You know you learn from where things go great. You know wonderful experiences, things that you can be proud of. This had a big impact, but also we learn from things where they don't go wrong. You know if you look back on your career, are there instances where you go, oh that was a real learning experience. I'd never do it that way again. You know those things where you've you know you just go, oh, you know I've learned a bit about myself or the organisation. Um, yeah. Loads. Uh, where does that? Well, I mean, really doing your due diligence and 
thinking about whether a place, not whether a place is a good place to work or not, or whether it's a good company or not, because they all have been, whether you're the right person for that company at that time. Yeah. I think that's definitely something I've learned. Um, well, and so if someone was thinking about a move now, you know, someone phones you up and says, look, I've been offered this great job, it's a different type of thing. How, what questions do you get them to think about? What would you say to them to help them make sure they're doing their due diligence? What is it that you, you, know, you learn, which are questions you asked about yourself that you'd give to somebody else? So funny enough, I'm mentoring someone at the moment who's just been offered a job okay. a few weeks ago. And so we had exactly, the, exactly this conversation. I think there's, um, there's the right brain stuff and then there's the left brain stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it depends on who you are as to how much each of those is more important to you but um, so there's the piece around forget the company what are the challenges Um, what does the CEO and the chairman really want to achieve what do they see as the issues that you need to focus on Mm. and and are you the right person to do that Um, yeah yeah there are many different types of painters but don't ask an oil painter to do a watercolor for you and don't ask a watercolor painter to do an oil painting for you so what are you and does it match so um, I think there's a whole piece of due diligence around that then there's a piece around what kind of relationships do you need to have at work? And some people are comfortable with quite cool, distant relationships. Some people need to be very connected. I need to be inside my CEO's brain, for example. I really need to know what they're thinking because then I can work back to how can I support him or her. So how do you test that before you make the decision? Yeah, okay. um, rather than have interviews, who are the people you're going to need to feel comfortable with and how do you spend time with them and I think one of the biggest mistakes we make in interviewing processes when you're looking for a yeah. job is not to slow it is to feel you can't slow it down and do a bit more due diligence before you make the decision and it's time well spent every time yeah absolutely um, so you talked about that was there other things that you've learned from other things that you think yeah. about you know experiences you go oh, with a bit of hindsight perhaps you know that was I'd do it differently now uh, yeah I mean there's there's a a stunning failure we I, I had in Telefonica Digital, where there was a absolutely brilliant leader of one of the businesses mm-hmm. who was a you know pure digital native had set up a company, become part of Telefonica, and we had a digital board, and we thought, what a wonderful way to recognise this person. We'll ask them to be a member of the board with us, come to the board meetings, really advise, all of that. Um, when they resigned six months later, it was one of the biggest single reasons why they decided they couldn't stay. And I kind of learned that what motivates me might not be what motivates someone quite different to me. Sure. Um, and it was just a big wake-up call. We got it completely wrong, lost a brilliant person, all because we did what we thought were all the right things, but they weren't right for him. Okay. Um, tell us a little bit about, I don't know, in, in relation to... Um change and transformation tell us a bit about what you think what role hr so i mean i know at direct line you've had to do a lot of change activity so tell me a bit about you know what role you think hr should play should it be a leader of change i'm sure you're going to say it should always be involved and engaged but uh, you know sometimes i think hr are well positioned to manage stuff i think sometimes we get it you know i'm not you know we'll come on to the hr profession a bit later but just change and transformation and HR's role in it. Big subject, big question. Um, I think the first thing is be really clear whether you mean change or whether you mean transformation. Because we interchange the words as yeah, if they yeah, mean yeah. the same thing and um, <coughs> I'm, they're not the same thing. No. And the way that you manage change is probably 
needs to be quite different to the way that you manage transformation and who's involved and what it means. So um, an, an example I heard was, you know, if you take a five-year period in a person's life, you know, between 50 and 55, they change. But as an adolescent between 15 and 20, there's a transformation. Uh, and that's the difference. It's not the amount of time. It's not the size. It's how fundamental the change yeah. is um, and how broad and, and broad-reaching the yeah. change is. Um, yeah, I get that. And I think I'm more interested in transformation than change because I think yeah. most organisations are changing all the time. So I think it's where you've got something which is disrupting the business and is quite significant, cost-based challenge, competitive challenge, and we need to radically do something different. Hmm. You know, transform, genuinely. Yeah, transform. So, you know, does HR... I think HR has a huge role to play. I think... Um, Unless it's owned by the business, by the P&L owners, it will not be successful. And I think sometimes it's easy to get into a trap of ending up being the driver of transformation. And actually, the P&L owners have to be the drivers of transformation. And that's not abdicating HR's role. No. Um, it's absolutely not. And as a member of the Exco, I need to own transformation, but not because I'm the HR director, but because as an Exco, we believe that's a transformation mm. the business has to make. Because it's it's a business transformation. Yeah, yeah okay. Um, and whether that's on your people and capability stems of it, or whether that's on how you make profit or your value chain or your products or whatever, if the business owners don't, believe and own and drive the change it's very unlikely it's going to succeed um, that said I think we've got some pretty core contributions to make I think compared to 10 years ago OD is now it's, it can't be a niche capability that no. two, two people in your function have it's got to be one of those core capabilities that everyone in the HR function needs to have as a skill and really understand in depth and be able to have mm. OD-based conversations with everybody. But also, I think it, it goes back to where we started. The broader and better you understand the business as an HR person, yeah. the better you'll be able to support real transformation. Yeah. And, and I think I think businesses are beginning to recognise that HR is, you know, the whole thing about, you know, programmatic change and you know project managing it and quite a linear stuff you know we're quite good at that in organizations mm. but what we're not so quite good at the whole thing about how do we break habits how do we change the habitual behavior how do we you know get people to go with the change to emotionally connect all of that stuff which i think hr has a, a big role so i think there's a, a recognition that we need to be blending skills and capabilities to make transformation uh happen successfully and I think HR has a big role to play in it. Let me just ask you one more question before we get to a break and then I'll come back. Tell me a bit about, you know, you just your take on where HR is at the moment, you know, as a profession, you know. Um, I think we've progressed a lot over the last 10, 15 years and I think we're better positioned than ever. But I, at the same time, I'm sometimes incredibly disheartened that we're not changing faster and grasping the opportunity. So I'm interested in your take on where we are and what you think is good, what you think is fantastic, and also where are the challenges? What are the things that HR should be stepping into? Um, yeah, I think we're genu I'm genuinely schizophrenic on this as well because um, largely the debate about whether HR should have a seat at the table has gone. You know, if those of us that have been you know ten years yeah. ago, the amount of HR senior people who were complaining that they didn't have a seat at the table that that debate has gone. I think, but with the absence of that debate with the seat at the table comes an increased expectation of what the HR function can do, how it can contribute. And, and I think 
the thing that makes me most excited but also means we've got the biggest stretch is that that has never changed as rapidly as it is right mm. now because it's not just the CEO now, it's now the chairman as well. And it's not just the people policies or the development agendas. Culture is now a board issue. Diversity and inclusion is now a board yeah. issue. The new changes around ESG are fundamentally changing what they expect you to A, keep them safe on, yeah, yeah. and B, to sort of really competitively use to your advantage. Mm. Um, and that means that some of the traditional skill sets that you would develop as you grow through the HR function aren't necessarily the ones that will best equip okay. our HR people to be able to sit in a boardroom and talk about mm. how we make sure that our investors are satisfied with our ESG policy or how we're using our corporate social responsibility agenda to attract millennials or, mm. so, or so, whatever so, the next yeah. thing is. And it, because they're not, they don't fit into the nice it's, little it's functional boxes that yeah. we've had in the past. And, and, and how do we develop HR people? So, you know... Uh, people that are perhaps like us that are coming towards the end of their career, uh, not at the end, but coming towards the end of our career, um, have a role to play in trying to hold up the mirror to the profession and say, these are the things, you know, we need to be much more effective at developing HR capability. And we can do that individually within our businesses, but as a profession, how do we, how do we try and, you know, get people to be able to play the role that I think is, required in the next decade which I think is you know much more strategic it's operating in lots of different places where historically we haven't um, and I'm not sure our sort of education policies and ways in which we've developed HR practitioners has really kept up with that uh, yeah I think I think the the bit that is an increased need is to understand the business but really understand the business. Yeah. So, you know, can you read our balance sheet? Do you understand the value chain? Mm. Do you understand what the business risks are? Um, what's, what, what's keeping your chief risk officer awake at night? What are the strategies that need to be adopted around that? If, so I think the, some of the HR expertise probably in itself technically doesn't change that much. No. Your ability to apply it as a senior business person is the big change because otherwise it's difficult to relate to yeah. the the board and the expert yeah. that you're talking to. And I think the other piece is um, we have a tendency in HR to be sort of process and perfection first and then go forward. And most of business is moving into an ever more agile model. And so how can you work iteratively? How can you start something and then respond to what you're hearing around you and let it evolve rather than have a policy that answers every single potential outcome. I think that's probably the second thing. And then the third thing, probably controversially, I, I think a lot of HR functions don't really trust line managers. And I'm not sure in, in, in that agile, fast-moving environment that you can manage it from a central or from a functional place. You have yeah. to have your managers empowered and you have to accept that, like everybody else, they're human beings and that they'll get it 90% right and 10% wrong, yeah. but that that, yeah. will, that will be worth it in the long run. It is. And again, you, you think about, I don't know, that the first part, you know, the second part, you made the point about agile, responsive to marketplaces, having to move up pace. And we teach HR as being quite process-driven, don't we? We teach mm. about write the policy then manage the people delivering against that policy. And I just, I'm with you, I don't think that works. I really don't think you can treat 
people as childs anymore and tell them what to do and then police them to do it. You know, I think we've got to trust people because they've got to make the decisions. They've got to make day-to-day decisions about their people and structures and process and what people focus on. And and we're there to help. And we, to be honest, I think we need to move from being the rule giver to actually being more of a coach or a support, or, but working in a very iterative way. Yeah, yeah spot on. I mean, we... Um I think either you think your company is full of bad people, in which case you should be focused on changing your people, or you think your company is fundamentally full of good people, in which case start treating them yeah. like good people. So yeah, we've, yeah. Um, over the last four years, we have massively reduced the number of policies we've got and massively reduced the policies we've got in terms of their length. So something like our travel and expenses policy was enormous. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. It was enormous. It was everything you'd expect us to inherit from our past. Um, We took it down to a really simple policy that basically said, you shouldn't be better off or worse off. You should be comfortable if what you're claiming, if other people knew that you'd claimed it. And you should be comfortable if it ever got into the papers that you were claiming for this. That's basically it. It's it's a couple of pages. Our claims on expenses went down. yeah. Because you trust people and then people respond accordingly. If you tell people that they can claim X for breakfast and X, then even though they're not actually spending any more, it, it sends a different message out. It does. Okay. So we, that's the end of our first half of our podcast with some of the honors from Direct Line. We'll be back in a couple of minutes uh, where we'll talk a bit more about um, the HR profession. We'll talk a bit more about uh, Simon the man and what he does outside of work. And we'll also talk a bit more about what he's going to do next. So join us in a couple of minutes. Are you looking to reduce risks and operating costs? Or increase your agility and capacity? There's more pressure than ever for HR and finance to provide strategic value for the business and for CEOs. At Zealous, our expert team creates software and managed services that handle your entire payroll and HR admin processes. We believe there are two sides to the employee experience. The fundamentals that need to go unnoticed and experiences that employees really care about. And we can help you master both. We're here to make the complex simple, freeing you up to focus on your people and achieve your goals. Find out more at zealous.com. Welcome back to the second part of this HR Futures podcast. With me today is Simon Linares from Direct Line. And what we're going to be doing, talking in this second half, is talking about a bit more about him, his career, and what next. So my first question, Simon, in terms of the second half, is just tell us a bit about how you as an HR director make the trade-off, you know, between what the HR function focuses on, the things it sort of uh, uses to drive change and performance improvement, and things that it can jettison or decide not to do. So how do you prioritise? How do you focus on you know, picking a few things that are going to make a bigger impact? How do you go about that? Yeah, good, uh, good question. And it's kind of the, it's fundamental to what you then spend the next two or three years doing. And, and equally importantly, what you spend the next two or three years consciously choosing not to do. Um, a couple of thoughts. I mean, one is you have to let go of your pet passions. So I came up a L&D and leadership development background. So my big temptation is that you know development and leadership behavioral yeah, stuff yeah, yeah, is yeah. the answer to everything. If I come up a reward background, my pet passions might be about reward or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. you have to be able to let go of your pet passions and then 
genuinely work back from what's the business strategy and what does the business strategy say is going to be most valued? What would your CFO be prepared to happily spend money on? Mm. What does your CEO say are the things they're concerned about that this is going to really solve? Um, and you, so that's, that's probably the most important thing. And then yeah. use some external people okay. to give you really objective challenge. So although we built the people strategy at Direct Line as a team, we, we consciously had some external input from people who knew HR agendas really well, knew lots of companies really well, and could say, what's the evidence for making that a priority? Is, okay. it, okay. is, it, is it a priority yeah, yeah. just because it's always been a priority? Where in the business strategy does something happen that informs you that this is a priority? So they're sort of checking your evidence based and your, yeah, and your data and how, you know, what impact would that make and what difference yeah. would it make and how would you measure it? Well, and the measurement one's really important as well. And I think it, it's not a new thing, but you know, if you haven't got a from to yeah. and if you haven't got some key measures, how will you know whether you're making progress or whether you're not? Um, so that's, pro- that's probably yeah. thoughts. I think that's really useful because I think I see even now going into HR functions, they seem still seem to be running around do, trying to do too much and not focusing on a few fewer things that will have bigger impact, you know. Mm. Um, okay, let's talk a little bit about a young person comes to you, you know, perhaps a second jobber and, you know, they're interested in a career in HR. Um you know, what would your advice be? You know, I think we've talked about now being a great opportunity for HR. So I'm sure you're going to say it's a great opportunity. But I think there's going to be other things that you may well say to somebody to get them to think through, you know, the HR um, career. Well, my first thing I might say is don't go and do something else first. Go and work in the business somewhere else. But if it's a second job and they've already done that, yeah. that might apply. Um, I just think... The more breadth of experience you've got, the better HR professional or whatever you choose to be, you're going to be. So, yeah. actually, if you are a sec- you know, if you're still really early in your career, um, it might be that yeah, yeah. doing two or three roles in HR is the best thing to do. It might be that actually going and doing something else in the business before you do that might be a better better thing to do. If you're in HR, though, if I, if I focus on HR, the same would apply. I mean, not many HR people ask for a secondment into the business, and I just think that's such a shame. And it, it can be for six months, it can be for two years, but getting some secondments into the front end of the business, either into the customer side of the business or the finance side of the business, and really understanding that. It, it won't just teach you lots of new things. It'll teach you a language you can then use when you're talking to other parts of the organization. And it'll give you a confidence and a credibility mm. that is hard to substitute in other ways. So I think that's that's probably probably the most important thing and it's not just to HR so no it's to every a a direct line our graduates join on a three-year scheme many of them know that they want to be in finance or they want to be in HR or they want to be wherever all of them have to spend six months in a contact center answering customer calls doing frontline work at the start of the scheme it's what none of them want to do by the end of the scheme it's what all of them say was the most valuable six months of their development Okay, I want to talk about direct line because again, I know you've you know you said you've done a lot of work on the culture and changing the culture. What's the thing that you used? You know, was there a particular tool or an approach that you used to help you change that culture to move it from where it was to where you wanted it to be? Um, couple of, couple of things. One is we we, we we stumbled on, if I'm honest, a really different methodology 
the some people call it engagement some people call it satisfaction but really we measure satisfaction on a scale of 0 to 100 uh-huh. um, this methodology measured full engagement so on six emotional driver questions anyone who wasn't positive on all six was a zero okay so when we introduced it a lot of managers suddenly had an engagement score of zero um, so that i think really uh, looking for methodologies that force you to raise your benchmarks is important. But the driver for our culture has been open, honest conversations. Okay. And probably the biggest single thing, there's lots of things, but the biggest single thing by far has been uh, really seriously taking the agenda around mental health into the business. And, okay. uh, and oh, the, yeah. Why has that been so well, the significant? Con- the context, there's, a, there's a million good reasons to focus on mental health, yeah. and I think yeah, most, most people on, on this podcast will know them. For us, it was... We, it was proof that we, we will know we've got an open, honest conversation throughout the business when people can talk about their mental health. Then we'll know they can bring all of themselves to work because if, if they can talk about their mental health, then childcare or any other yeah. issue is going to seem very straightforward as a conversation. So for us, it was about, yes, people needed help, um, but it was also... The real proof point when we can when teams can talk about their mental health they can probably talk about anything and you if you really want to have a culture that's built around inclusion yeah. and around wellness and around high engagement it's yeah. as good a proof point as any other so that's probably over the last three years the single most impactful thing we've done mm. okay let's look into the future a bit now so we're sort of you know we hear about robots and AI and machine learning and algorithms, you know, and depends who you believe, but 38% of work's going to be automated. We hear a lot about uh, augmentation. We hear a lot about humans working with robots in new collaborative ways. So we've got a lot of technical change that's going to come and disrupt businesses as well as the sort of ongoing competitive pressure. So I suppose the question is, is what should HR be doing to get in front of that? Uh, you know, what's HR's focus? Because it's coming. I think it's coming up pace. Mm-hmm. And I think it can change our organisations and the way that we work and how work is done. And I think HR needs to be thinking about this. And I'm just not quite sure we are, but I'd be interested in your view in the world. Um, yeah, it's one of the big unknown questions. I think, um, I mean, the only two things I am sure of one is that in five years from now, things and ten years from now, things will be very, very different. And the other, the other thing I'm sure of is that nobody really knows what it will look like. Um, so, one of the things we need to do is become much better at managing evolution, without knowing the destination. Yeah. yeah, yeah. we as HR, we're pretty good at saying we're here. We're trying to get there. And we'll develop you a really good process or we'll develop really good methodologies or whatever to get you from here to there. What we've got to get really good at now is saying we're here and we're changing. Yeah. And as we go along, we'll build things with the business because we don't know exactly where we're going. But we know we need to be able to be much better at mm. changing quickly than we are. Um, and it links back to the change and transformation question. I mean, technology, AI, automation... Out doubt, without doubt, is one of the big opportunities for efficiency, for taking away routine mundane work, um, for providing consistency, um, for providing enrichment to the organization and to the people. It's also one of the big threats and challenges. Um, and how you manage teams that, where mm. their productivity is as much a function of technology as it is of people 
will be a whole new area yeah. for, for HR to focus on. You know, at the moment, machines are simply tools that we use. Yeah. They're going to become something much more fundamental. No, I think that's fair. I think the whole ethics is interesting as well. You know, mm. just think about the data that you're going to have at your disposal in relation to your people. You know, how mm. you deal with that. You know, what yeah. do we have a right to use? What do we, you know, there's all of that as well. So, so what do you think HR should be doing? Just trying to understand it and to you know, so it's a learning thing. I know you said one of the things you said earlier is that you're going to do some mm. programming and, and play around with technology and learn about technology because it's going to be so preeminent, I suppose, in our minds over the next 10 years. And is that what HR people should be doing? Really getting to grips with technology and understanding it more than they have ever done before? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think everyone in HR has to go and learn to be a computer programmer um, or a software programmer. Um, but do you understand it? In the same way that do you really understand how the business makes money, hmm. um, do you really understand what technology is as opposed to our desktop is getting prettier? Do you, do you really understand how it will change workflow processes? Yeah. Do you really understand which roles you probably won't need in two years' time and how do you retrain those people yeah. so that they're still valuable and employable by the organization at the end? Do you realize what it changes around how you measure performance and productivity? Um, I don't, which is why I want to go and learn. Yeah, but, yeah. but I think that's the challenge for HR. Yeah. Or, or we will be antiquated uh, compared to how the business is changing and we'll be left behind as irrelevant. I think it's absolutely spot on. Tell me a bit about your passions outside of work. I know you travel a lot. Because um, <laughs> uh, I often sort of try to track you down and go, Simon's away, he's on a holiday somewhere. Yeah, it's always I'm somewhere well, really nice. I'm always on holiday. I don't know whether that's a sign of success no, or laziness. I think, I, think, I, think you, I think you're very clear about managing that, though, aren't you? You've yeah. always been, you, know, you, yeah. you program it in and you make it happen. So I, I know that's important to you, but what else? Theatre, literature, sport, what else do you do outside of work? Yeah, you know? you're right. I am pretty disciplined around my work life balance. and. Mm-hmm. It comes from, you know, I've been with my partner Dave for 26 years and we have a 26-year-old daughter um, and we both work and therefore being able to really manage your work around um, what you also wanted and needed to do as a parent was really important to both of us. So that really taught us to be really disciplined. She's 26 now. She's working. Um, I still keep that discipline and that enables me to go and do lots of traveling and I love I love going to places that I don't know. I love going to places where I have to learn and really think about what their normal is versus mine, different foods, different customs, um, all the things I take for granted not being true. We just spent um, two and a half weeks traveling around northern India and we wanted to go during Diwali. And it's bonkers, but it's also just fantastic because you suddenly realize that for millions and millions of people, this is such an important thing. And I didn't even know what was going on, really, um, until I experienced it. Um, So that's the most important thing, and that's why work-life balance is important because I think you need to have time for your other passions. Other things I do, I um, I like scuba, I like traveling, I like the theater, I like food. I basically like anything I can do with friends or family. That's okay. that's the common link. Okay. I like I like being around my, my friends yeah, and being around my family. Social animal. Social with the people that are important to me. Okay. I don't. Yeah. I, do you like your own company? Yeah, that's something that's changed over the last 10, 15 years. I, I do. I, I am a borderline EI, which <laughs> nobody believes, but. For the last 10 years, it's consistently come up in all my psychometrics. So I do need my own time, happy to work from home occasionally, and just just lock myself away as well. 
but I, but I, you know, friends and family at the end of the day, when the career's over, are what's still going to be yeah, there. Absolutely. So let's just finish about the career question, which is what you think's next. And I know it's early because you've only just sort of made the announcement you're stepping down and someone else is coming in to, to, to take over the HR role. So what are your, what are your thoughts? Where, what's your thought process at the moment about the next phase of work for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, I, uh, I became a non-exec uh, at the Nottingham Building Society, which is yeah, a wonderful mutual tier two building society, four billion in assets um, and in the end of last year. And I'm really enjoying having to learn the business, not as an HR director, but yeah, yeah. as a Good member of the board yeah, yeah. Uh, and work out how to add value when you don't run a department and you don't run a budget and you don't do any of those things. So part of the future is definitely a plural career with some non-exec responsibilities. The other thing I love, which goes right back to how I ended up in HR, is helping people grow um, and helping people learn. So uh, there's definitely some coaching and mentoring in my portfolio. I'll never say never to doing another HRD job, but it will be very hard to find one to follow direct line. Um, so well, It's a question. Why not a chief exec's job or an MD's job? I think you need to know what you're good at, but also know what you're not good at. And I think you need to know what you're passionate about. Um, and I think to be a chief exec, you have to really enjoy a whole range of things that aren't necessarily what I'm either best at or most passionate around. So I, you know, I, I know, because I've been to enough results meetings, how important managing analysts is, managing the investor community is, managing the media is. That's not me. Uh, and I kind of know that's not me. So there's bits of a chief exec job that I would love to do, but jobs don't come like that. You have no. to you have to love the whole job. Yeah, yeah. And I, as an HRD, I've loved the whole job, including the worst bits of it. But I love the whole job. Um, as a chief exec, you have to love that whole job, and it's a very different job. And there are better people who really want that sort of job. Thanks for spending the time with us. It's been a really good conversation, and I'm sure people will get a lot from listening to your podcast. So thank you, Simon. Thanks, Kevin.